2: Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Ireland's codeine problem as prescriptions for pain relief soar, we discuss. Is artificial intelligence posing a serious risk to our jobs and way of life? The godfather of this new technology issues a stark warning. Imagine giving a fifth grader a personal math tutor with unlimited time and patience. It's a great tool to bring learning to everyone. We're also live in London as a man is arrested outside Buckingham Palace in a major security alert tonight. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. As always, it's hashtag TonightVMTV. First, some breaking news. A man has been arrested after a security incident at Buckingham Palace in London, just days before the coronation of King Charles III. Our correspondent, Ollie Barrett, joins us live from London. Ollie, what do we know? What's the very latest?
3: An update from the Metropolitan Police just in the last few moments. They've confirmed that that arrest of a man was made at about 7pm this evening after a man approached the gates of Buckingham Palace and threw something into the grounds. It is suspected that what was thrown into the palace grounds were shotgun cartridges. Uh, We're also told though that those have been recovered in the words of the police and taken for what they call specialist examination. The man who's been arrested has been arrested on suspicion according to the police of the possession of an offensive weapon. That is after he was searched after uh, initially being apprehended and a knife was found. Uh, There was also a controlled explosion outside Buckingham Palace of a bag that the man had in his position uh, and police say that they will be trying to establish exactly what was in that bag as well as inquiries continue. They say that specialists attended the scene. Uh, There was a controlled explosion uh, for what they describe as a precaution. There were a number of cordons in place uh, from the police around the palace after the arrest and after the controlled explosion took place. Police in the last few moments have told us that those cordons have now been removed. Um, We have some words from Chief Superintendent Joseph Donald, who says that officers worked immediately to detain the man. He's been taken into police custody. Crucially, he says no reports of any shots fired or of any injuries to officers or members of the public. Uh, The Metropolitan Police finally telling us that they are not treating this matter at this time as terror-related. We understand that the King and the Queen Consort were not at Buckingham Palace at the time of this incident. They were, though, uh, in and around Buckingham Palace earlier today. They had a reception At Parliament with uh, MPs, the King actually drove right past me early afternoon just outside Buckingham Palace uh, through what is already pretty strict and tight security in the form of barriers uh, up and down the streets of the Mall leading up to Buckingham Palace. Um, Police, as I say, saying that this man uh, who's been detained remains under arrest and they say that inquiries are continuing.
2: All right, Ollie Barrett, we will uh, leave it there. But thank you for bringing us that update. Well, next tonight, the news that prescriptions for medicines containing codeine are up 22% in a decade is leading to calls for more controls. So does Ireland have a codeine problem? Well, I'm joined by Fine TD, Colin Burke, Independent Senator Gerard Crochwell, Pharmacist Susan O'Dwyer from the Irish Pharmacy Union, Abbey Theatre Associate Playwright Lisa Tierney-Kyo, And I'm also joined by Dr. Dennis McCauley, who joins us on Skype this evening. And I'm going to go to you first, Colin Burke, because this was in response to a number of parliamentary questions that you had put in. Um, The figures are 1,100,000 prescriptions plus last year, a jump of 22% in the last decade, a jump of 17% since 2018 alone. What prompted you to put in these questions? Well, I
4: think it's important that we actually find out what's happening. You know, there's a lot of speculation about people's reliance on medication and drugs. Um, And I think it's important that we get the true and accurate figures. And I put down a series of questions, as you know... The drugs are... there. There's three different schemes. There is the general medical uh, uh, services, the the drug payment scheme, and then there's the long-term illness scheme. So there's three different... So we had to combine all the figures, and this is the figure we came up with. And what Uh, this
2: doesn't obviously include are people who get prescriptions and pay for them privately. It doesn't include Yes, and it
4: doesn't include, obviously, their codeine products, their, their products as well, which have codeine, which don't require prescription. So this is only just a snapshot of this particular area and I think it's important that we look at it. We examine it. You know, the drugs product, uh, the health products regulatory authority is looking at this issue at the moment. And across Europe, there has been more regulation put in place. We need to be careful because you know, medication is about trying to help people to recovery. It's about. It's not necessarily about being there for life. That in other words, that a person is on the same medication for a long period of time. And we also need to work out. You know. If people are on medication for a long period of time, does it have adverse effects, and we need to be careful of that as well?
2: And um, the figures that you got obviously represent prescriptions, prescriptions yes. from people who attended uh, their GP with a set of symptoms and were prescribed um, this medication. Do you have any sense here that there's an over reliance?
4: No, on I this think in fairness to GPs, I think GPs in fairness they 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 carefully manage their patients. But I do believe that there's a number of uh, contributory factors that are here in the sense that the there there can be a situation where there are delays in getting access to the treatment that the person requires. And I i have a big advocate about making sure that if there's any delay that people can get uh, care through the treatment purchase fund rather than waiting for long periods of time for say operations for say knee replacement, hip replacement, all of that. So when people are in pain, the doctors obviously have to manage it very carefully. And I think in fairness, they are managing carefully. And there, you know, there are checks and balances there for, for GPs as well. And I do believe that they're doing their best. And so you remember, don't think
2: there's any over-prescribing or over-reliance here? I
4: don't think, but it's in it's in like in every profession, you know, <clears throat> there are people who are extremely careful. I think the vast majority of GPs are. Um, but I think we need to now review this to know can we manage it in a better way and can we at the same time, provide the best quality care for our patients.
2: Uh, Susan, as Colin <clears throat> outlined there, there's a sort of a snapshot of a particular set of figures. Do you think, though, it is reflective of a general coding market?
1: Um, well, I don't have the figures for the private coding market or the OTC sales in particular, but I would say it's probably likely that if the prescriptions have gone up, the over counter-prescription or products have also gone up as well. So if you see, think about pharmacy, it's often the fourth, first line of call. If somebody has a pain issue, certainly if they're suffering from acute pain, they'll come to the pharmacy first. The pharmacy, they may need to refer on to the GP. So it's probably a symptom of people with pain needing to access medications to treat that pain and maybe not being able to access services other than, for example, pharmacy or the GP, and that may well be reflective in the figures.
2: Okay, I want to bring in uh, Dennis McCauley here because you're on the front line. You are probably one of these GPs who does prescribe this medication. Um, But I'm wondering what you put the the jump, the 17% increase in prescriptions for medicine that contains codeine since 2018. What's that down to?
5: I think, Kira, there's a number of issues, but very clearly we are getting much older as a population. There are more of us, so there's a lot more pains about. I think as well you have to realise that one of the other um, drugs that we used to use quite a lot for pain in the last decade, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, there's been a tendency to prescribe these less in older people because of the issues they have. They can affect their kidneys and their heart. So therefore immediately you find yourself using more I think, as, uh, as as Deputy Burke mentioned, we have a significant waiting list issue. We have sixty-five thousand people waiting to see an orthopedic surgeon, not even being put on the waiting list, so they can use um, the um, treatment purchase fund. So we have a lot of people in chronic, chronic pain, um, so therefore that has all those things will in, increase the the level of prescription of pain, pain painkillers. We have functional addicts now. We have people waiting three, four years to see the consultant before putting on another two years to wait for their hip. And these people are crying in pain. And we're giving them codeine and stronger medicines as well. I would hate to think that that we would change the rules because we have a dysfunction within the actual system. And I think we have to be very careful. I think that I wouldn't like to set an agenda that it's inevitable that we have to change things. I think that at the present minute, we have a situation where you can get medicines over the counter. We can prescribe medicines on a repeat prescription. And I would worry that we are looking at the figures in a, in a very skewed way that we're assuming that we're overusing these. We're using them because we need them. And one of the primary reasons is a lack of, we have to replace a drug that we previously used and people having to wait far too long in chronic pain for procedures. And I think that is a a terrible tragedy and an indictment, really.
2: I take it, uh, given the risks that people can become dependent on opioids, you would say that there's a reluctance on the part of a GP to start prescribing this medication on a regular basis?
5: Well, oh, undoubtedly so, Annette, but I think that when you get to somebody who has chronic pain, there is there is a risk-benefit analysis. You have to sort of say that, is it better that these people have codeine for a number of years, um, hoping that we can ameliorate what is causing it, but quite a lot in sort of chronic illness, particular back back pain, where there's no significant major treatment, people will be on these drugs for the rest of their lives. But as I say, that we are... There's a a subsection of people, potentially many, many thousands, who are basically, uh, have become dependent on these medications primarily because the other treatments that should be available aren't available.
2: I want to put that back to uh, Colin Burke. We are creating a group of people who are addicted, opioid addicts in this country because... The health system is dysfunctional.
4: That's well, what you know. President first of all, said. we've had a huge increase in population. We've an increase of 1.2 million in population, which is 60,000 per annum an increase. So that's gone on for the last um, number of years. It's a big increase, and unfortunately, we haven't grown, whether we like it or not. And there's no point in walking away from it. We haven't grown our health service as regards the infrastructure, for, uh, infrastructure. But we have grown the number of people within the health service, for instance. We've gone from over 103,000 whole-time equivalents in the HSE in December 2014 to over 142,000 people now. That's a 40% increase. But we need the infrastructure, we need the beds. And it's one of the reasons why I'm campaigning very hard about elective hospitals because, you know, a lot of the people that are on medication are waiting for essential operations, whether it is hip replacement, whether it is knees, whether it's other uh, operations yeah. like that. And therefore, we and need the to... And says there,
2: 65,000 people on a waiting list waiting to see that surgeon to be told, yes, you do need an so operation we, before they can even look at getting near is, the National this Treatment is Purchase Funds. This is why
4: I'm one of the people who, who's looking for the same as a whole lot of other people looking for the building of elective hospitals so we can fast-track a lot of this work. And, you know, we, we need... And is there resistance to... to that? No, I think the whole problem that we have at the moment is that the the whole process of getting decisions made as regards moving on with projects is taking too long within the current structure that we have. This country has moved at a phenomenal pace in the last 10 years. We've grown over 700,000 jobs, but we now need to respond in relation to public policy and deliver in a far, faster time frame than what we've been doing.
2: Uh, Gerard, your response to this?
6: Well, first and foremost, um, I, I accept that doctors have to prescribe dr- drugs for pain, etc. My, my concern is, if you look at the statistics, I think we're probably in the top, top three in the world for the consumption of codeine in this country. A lot of it is over the counter. The danger, of course, is that somebody is on a prescribed drug for a period of time. And as the doctor pointed out there, we have these inordinately long waiting lists. Uh, You see, we're
2: in the top three in the world of coding users. That's
6: my understanding. That's my understanding. Ireland, the UK and Japan, I think it works out like that. Um, uh, And a lot of this is over the counter uh, because people augment the uh, prescription by going... And with the best will in the world, a chemist can only advise somebody that the drug you've just ordered or the drug you want to buy contains a codeine and it should be taken with care. But sure, I can go down the road to the next chemist and the one after that and the one after that. And the danger, of course, is if you try to regulate... The, the consumption of codeine-based products or products that have codeine in them, then you're into all sorts of human rights issues where people have a right to self-medicate if they're in pain uh, and they have a right of access to drugs. Uh, the waiting list issue... It really galls me when we talk about waiting lists in this country because I travel to places like Finland, like Estonia, like uh, Bahrain. For example, I was in Bahrain recently uh, at, at an interparliamentary conference and some wax became dislodged in my ear and I went totally deaf. And in 15 minutes, I was seen by a consultant, had the job rectified and was out of hospital. And it cost me 18 public... dinar in a public hospital.
2: In a public hospital.
6: Uh, Which and, is and, a, you know, when you look at that, what have we been doing with the money that we're pumping in? It's just money, money, money
4: being pumped in and no real reform taking okay, place. OK, I'll just let you respond to but that. We have taken on a whole lot of additional consultants. Yes, we need to take on more. We've taken on a whole lot of additional nurses and men. people, 40,000 extra people in the last eight years. But the other issue there in relation to in relation to drugs where you don't need a prescription. Remember, there's nothing preventing someone from calling to five different pharmacies under one day. Well, this is one the of the other problems.
2: Yeah, this is one of the things, Susans, that the uh, Health Products Regulatory Authority are looking at. They're doing a, a review, I suppose, of the prescribing and indeed the selling of over-the-counter uh, medication that contains codeine. And there does seem to be a move, if you look at some other European countries, indeed, if you look as far as Australia, to restrict the selling of those particular types of uh, medication. Do you agree with that?
1: There already are quite a lot of restrictions, actually, in terms of the sale of codeine over-the-counter. So if you go into a pharmacy, there's a series of questions that the pharmacy team will go through with you to ascertain if the medication is actually suitable. If you've not tried other medication, for example, paracetamol or ibuprofen as a first-line treatment, then that would be the alternative that would be offered to you. In many that cases, happens in the pharmacy yeah.
2: that you attend, and I suppose there would be yeah. a lot of people who would say that doesn't happen when they yeah. go to the pharmacy. Well,
1: there's, I can tell you across the market it does happen, and I know of plenty of people who've been gone in to get mm-hmm. codeine and haven't been able to get it because it wasn't the most suitable medication for them. Um, in relation to the issue where people can go to different pharmacies, I think if you're restricted to prescription only, that doesn't necessarily get rid of that issue, because if somebody has a dependence issue, they could also go to different GPs or they could try to potentially access GPs online, etc. Or they may even try to just access the codeine from alternate sources. So maybe something like a register where you had a record of the supply of codeine, whether that's on prescription or over the counter, might be something that might help and it would be another control, but just helps with that safe consumption. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to be able to help the patient that's in pain, but you don't want somebody yeah. to develop an unintended dependence on that particular product. I know at least um,
4: on the prescriptions. So the, the issue that that was a problem five or six years ago, where you could have easier access to GPs. Now it's a it's mm-hmm. it's far more difficult to do. And I don't think you know that a person can get uh, you know prescriptions from three different GPs. I don't think that's possible now, whereas it might have been 10 years ago, not now.
2: Okay, I'm going to go back to Dennis McCauley on that, but I just want to bring in Lisa here because, Lisa, you have endometriosis, which is a chronic pain condition as common in this country as asthma, diabetes, and the main symptom is pain. That's
1: correct.
2: How would people who suffer with endometriosis feel, do you think, if there were further restrictions placed on the sale of these products that contain codeine or if they became prescription only?
7: It would be absolutely devastating to us. Um, I I want to say how difficult it is to sit here and listen to policy and statistics and tell you that right now in this moment, I am in pain. And I know that a lot of women in Ireland and uh, people assigned female at birth who have endometriosis, we don't have any services at the moment. To access a public pain clinic is a year and a half to two years of waiting. So if you take away codeine painkillers, which... We all have to rely on because we don't have access. If you have the privilege of having access to a private pain consultant, then, then that's, that's great. But most people don't.
2: So they and have so, what, to go so, and so what you, you have to do
7: is you have to go into a chemist and you have to get salpidine or you have to get neurofem plus. And that is literally just to keep you upright. If you take that away, there won't be anything. There will be no pain relief for all of these, predominantly, this is predominantly going to affect women. By the way, this, if this, if this, if this is, if these are made prescription only, there is there is not enough services. The waiting lists are the reason. In my, I, I believe that the reason the prescriptions have gone up is because there is so many, there is so, such a big waiting list. Well,
2: why would it be so difficult for sufferers, Lisa, to go into the GP and present their symptoms to a GP and get a prescription? for this medication. Well,
7: how long does it take to get an appointment for a GP? If you're in the kind of pain that, like from in my situation, that endometriosis can give you, which is as common as asthma and diabetes, thousands of women in Ireland have it. You can't wait an hour, you can't wait. Sometimes it can take a week to two weeks to get an appointment with a GP. In the meantime, if you take away our codeine products, you're talking about women sitting at home, languishing, having to take time off work, which is going to have an economic impact. you're you're giving nothing. So if you're going to take something away, you have to give something in return, and that would be either quality access to health care for people with endometriosis and other chronic pain conditions. There's no joined-up thinking going on here. And I suppose, in
2: fairness, Dennis, I'm wondering if GPs would be in a position to accommodate people who take, let's say, Nurofen Plus or Salpudine on a regular basis. Would you be in a position to see these people short notice and prescribe them those painkillers if that's what they need?
5: I think if it came to that, the answer is definitely no. I think the actual threshold of general practice, the actual the, the ability of, of general practice to give a, a same day service has now been breached. We can't do that. I think though, we have to just stand back slightly and, and sort of say, well, I agree with what Lisa said really. Um, we, there is There has been a, 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 an increase in coding, but that's undoubtedly quite a lot of the time it's because of a need um, there is there addiction of uh, is there addiction problem with codeine? Yes. Is it is it a big problem? I don't really know, and I think that's why we have to wait for the for the evidence to come. But I do think that we have to be very careful about restricting access to a very um, a relatively safe now we can talk about, there there are dangers to it uh, pain painkiller for a perception that may not exist. I think that there is. In an increased use of codeine, and we've talked really why that is. Some of it may be to to um, addiction, but my understanding and my feeling is that the vast majority of is quite appropriate um, sc- uh, um, prescriptions. So if you stop the over-, over the counter, I think more from a um, uh, a sort of an 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 a, a autonomy issue for the patient would be a significant. A major issue, but the secondary issue is that general practice could not cope at the present minute. The same the same day service is is now being breached. The 500 uh, the 500,000 uh, doctor visit cards that are about to be issued will completely affect that. So no, I I I think the answer is let's look at the evidence before we start making pre. Sort of pre-made uh, views that this is all due to addiction. To all due to addiction. To yeah, addiction. I just
2: want to let Colin. I, 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 I get the third
7: it. degree every time I go into a chemist to seek Xalpidine mm. or norfen I get asked several questions, and in fact, some some chemists I will avoid because it it just it's too painful because I, I it's almost as a shame attached to it. Would you have
2: any difficulty with having some sort of a register or a health identifier that would show? you know, how often you would be taken this particular medication?
7: No, oh, but if there was something backed up to help us, if there were other services, the problem is that there is no other services. OK,
4: but just a wider issue, I, think, I suppose, that
2: Lisa's brought up and yeah, Dennis I think, has brought up. I think what
4: Lisa's brought up is an extremely important issue. I think in relation to women's health, we've been far too slow off the mark in a whole range of areas. I mean, you can go back to the maternity services, All right. you know, and a couple of years ago we had only about something slightly over 100 consultants. Now we've changed that. Likewise, we need to change it in the area that Lisa's talking about and we need to roll out. And in fact, over two weeks ago, I raised that very issue uh, with the Minister about when are we going to roll out the, you know, there's a proposal for I'm, I'm just two wondering... units... Uh, one in Cork, one in Dublin, but also five other hubs, and we need to roll out those very fast. Yeah, I'm just you wondering
2: know. very quickly, Colin Burke, if the government's focus is in the right place at this point, as Dennis McCauley says. Well, l- looking at perhaps restricting the sale of this medication isn't necessarily the answer. Looking at why people Laura, are having to take I, I this medication yeah. in the first place is where the government's yeah. focus should
4: be. I, I think the the issue that I've raised is about having a debate on this issue, but also waiting mm-hmm. until the... the um, the Regulatory Authority come back with their report, having reviewed it, and relying on their expertise before we make any decision. And listening to people
2: like
7: Lisa? That's what I was about to ask. Are they going to talk to people and women who are in pain? Because I don't feel like that's happening.
4: But I think there has to be a consultation with everyone involved in this area, whether it's the people who are on the front line who require the care, as well as the general practitioners, the medical consultants, okay. and Would the pharmacists we, or, as okay, well. Okay, and well, I think it's technology. And it's important we that we can do challenge that. This. If you take All this right. away,
7: you'll be taking away a lifeline.
4: True, but I, I do believe that we need to roll out a whole lot of areas in relation to women's health. Okay. The minister and I'm has you made you be taking
7: away something very vital. The minister that we has rely made an on. announcement right, going to on that issue, we're going to have to
4: and leave then it there. you know we've got to make it sure that it's rolled out in a faster, a far faster time Okay,
2: frame. we have to leave it there, but I'm sure we'll come back to this issue again. My thanks to Susan, to Lisa, and to Dennis uh, for joining us. Possible for that next it's a short working week this week after the bank holiday but is a permanent four-day working week the way forward for the workforce we're going to debate that next hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news Jared are still with me and I'm also joined now by Hazel Gavigan, Director of Communications for Four Day Week Global and John Barry MD of Management Support Services and a member of the Employers Body ISME to discuss a new pilot project around a four day working week and I'm going to come to you first Hazel because one of the slogans on your website is time to rethink the way we do things. So what model are you proposing here?
8: So at 4-Day-Week Global, the model we advocate for is the 180-100 model. So that's 100% of your pay for 80% of the time for a commitment to delivering 100% of the output. So that's no pay cut, genuine reduction in work week. If we're previously on 40 hours, we're now on 32 hours and all maintaining the same level of productivity. And maintaining the same level of benefits, same number of holidays across the year? Exactly. I mean, it varies company by company, but yeah, so the main thing that we're talking about is a genuine reduction in work time. So you're giving that extra day back to the worker and they can maintain the same level of output. So it's better for workers, better for business.
2: And you are running another pilot here, the second pilot in Ireland, and you're asking companies to come forward. All companies, public sector, private sector... Anyone who'll have it. You think anybody (laughs) can do this? Anyone can do
8: this. So that's the beauty of this model. So with the 180-100, it's a very flexible model. So we're not talking about a three-day weekend. Not everyone is going to have Fridays off. It depends on the needs of your business, the level of service that you have to provide. So in some circumstances, yes, it will look like Fridays off and Mondays off. Elsewhere, it might look like five shorter days. If you have a commitment to a 24-7 level of service. You could look at alternative um, shift rotations. But, yes, so any company of any size, from any sector as well, um, we really believe and have seen that this is possible right across the board.
2: And the benefits for employees are probably pretty obvious. Better work-life balance...
8: For sure, yeah. So the four-day week, it's a real triple dividend policy. So it's better for workers, better for business and better for the environment as well. So I don't think too many people would need convincing of the worker benefits, but just to touch on them very briefly, we released research from the largest trial of its kind in the world back in February that took place in the UK. So we had over 60 companies participating there and just under 3,000 workers. And the worker benefits that we recorded were remarkable. So people across the six month pilot program at the end reported a 71% reduction in levels of burnout. They reported a 39% reduction in levels of stress. They were sleeping more, they were exercising more. They were generally overall more satisfied with their time, but I don't think anyone will find that very hard to believe. But then you look at the business benefits as well, which I think is the main concern for most people. They were really impressive too. Any company out there who is looking to attract and retain top talent, the four-day week is a model for them. So you're seeing a 57% reduction in the number of people leaving. So that's a huge increase in retention rates. There was a 65% reduction in levels of absenteeism. So people were... So just a happy,
2: clappy workforce, happy to be there for their four-day week. Exactly. And then all the environmental benefits as well. So it's a win-win-win. Uh, John Barry, 100% think of employees that were surveyed who did this last year in Ireland said that they were happier with this setup. So you've absolute employee buy-in, it would appear. What could possibly go wrong or be wrong with it?
10: I suppose the key thing here, firstly, I think COVID has dramatically changed our thinking about the working week anyway. Uh, And this is why I'm fascinated by this obsession with the four-day week because that's very... very, Like the five-day week, it's very prescriptive. We've moved on now to job sharing, flexible working, uh, part-time working, and all these protections have been put in place for employees. So the four-day week, in fact, my view, is restricting these, not helping these things. Um, in
2: what way? Would well, I mean, you not do your hybrid working and just work two days in the office, two days at home, and you have your Friday or your Monday whatever day off?
10: Well, firstly, I mean, what I'm, the point I'm making is is that there's a whole range of arrangements now for people to avail of, so it's not just the four-day week, and this is the key point. And this cam- I'd be afraid that this campaign focuses people on the four-day week and not all these other options that are available. I would deal mainly with small companies, and the reality there is they... Long as they get their delivery of their service, they're quite happy. Many would be committed to five- or seven-day services, uh, and comm- they require people coming in the front door for their businesses, so they can't plan their for- production in four days. They have to be open in seven days. And, and so, therefore,
2: what Hazel is saying there is that um, what you would be able to do is you're getting you're open still for your five days, but your workforce is working harder, except across four days. So your productivity levels, she would say, will remain the same.
10: Well, at the moment we have a recruitment crisis; we're short of employees. So how could someone provide a full seven day service when in fact they're giving staff four days? They still have another three days to cover. Uh, and of course, the other point is is that you go to a four day week. Um, and as, 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 as Hazel said, the principle is 180 100. So therefore, they're not going to reduce pay. So people coming in are going to be paid 20% higher than they would have been normally because they've got to compare with those who are on the four-day week. So you're know, looking at a built-in increase in costs as well as anything else because you're paying for five days' work in four days.
2: Hazel, let you respond to that. Um, not quite.
8: I mean, the 180 100. You're achieving the same level of output. So. The vast majority of companies who implement this model, they do three main things. They reorganize how they're meeting. So they might reduce it from an hour to 30 minutes. They have really clear agendas, really clear action points. They look at how they can digitize processes and use technology more effectively to automate some processes to allow time for more focused, valuable work to further objectives quicker. And then you have periods for distinct focus time as well. So. By doing those three main things, you're reclaiming back that extra 20% of your week without incurring any cost at all. No,
2: John, you're shaking your head. No?
10: No, well, I'm talking about the seven-day service. I mean, it's okay where people can work in an office or they're working on production line, and production can be planned in that time. But if you're waiting for people to come in the front door to you, you're going to need people present. So we're reducing our workforce by 20% in terms of one day a week, we have to fill that with other people. So we have to get more people to cover the other days.
2: Do you days? accept that, that in some models it just won't work, that if you still have to open your business seven days a week, you can't rearrange your staff so that you get more out of them four days a week? You still have to backfill certain positions?
8: I think where there's a will, there's a way. So you mentioned manufacturing there, so... One example I can call on, we have a brewery in the UK and they had production five days a week previously and they're like, how are we going to operate across four days? Mm. So they split their team and some people take Mondays off, some people take Fridays off, so they're still maintaining that same level of output across five days and then they swap it month on month. Um, Would you like to see
2: this legislated for here in Ireland? Do you think that's where we should be moving towards?
8: I think where we should be moving is to introduce trials. So... It's all about gathering evidence and showing how this can work and ironing out, ironing out any difficulties and addressing challenges because, of course, with any large-scale change management project, there are going to be challenges. So trials, both public and private, are the way forward to achieving this across the board. Uh,
2: Colin as Hazel said, there are public and private co- uh, companies, they're looking for them to get involved. Could you see public sector workers getting involved in I this? could see
4: it happening in certain areas, but there are other areas where you can, for instance, you take the healthcare area, you, it would be quite challenging to do it. We're already short of people in that particular area, and as I said, we've already increased the number in the HSC by over forty thousand in the last eight years, and still we have huge demands as regards services. So, but I it's what Hazel is saying is
2: that if you look at a business model, there'll always be further efficiencies you can make with it.
4: But it, it's it's going to be challenging in certain areas. You take, say, for instance, the catering industry. You know, the the whole restaurant, the hotel industry. You know, you it's a seven day a week, Um and in fact, you have found um, uh, that since COVID, a lot of restaurants can no longer were open seven. Days. <laughs> They're only open five days a week now because they can't get staff. So that's the challenge that you have as well. So, yes, definitely you can do it in certain areas. For instance, we have a lot of companies already where people work three days a week. They work three 12-hour shifts. Now it's not recommended. It's not good for people's health. But that has been in place for quite a long period of time. And it has been within certain areas of the health service as well. And, you know, you can implement it in certain companies, but not in all companies, and I think you'd have to look at it. But there is okay. one other thing that we need to keep in mind: is that productivity level in Ireland is one of the highest in the world, and I think we can be very proud of that because workers, when they give that commitment, they do deliver and deliver very well. So if and they're given,
2: it, well, but do you think if they're given then the option to produce the same levels of productivity across four days as opposed to across five, they would be able to? I achieve think in that certain also. companies
4: you can achieve it because you know we have the records <laughs> set in this area, but it's not. Applies. It doesn't apply to every um, employer and every employment situation.
2: Okay, Jared. As Hazel said, this is part of a, a global movement here. Do you think this is how it's going to look in the future?
4: I think it do. I think
6: it will. As a former leader of a trade union, mm. I would very much support the the four day week. We can throw all the problems in the world in front of it, and there is no doubt that one size won't fit it all. But in your opening uh, statement, you said that it might be a five-day week with shorter working hours. What we're looking at here is 80% attendance with 100% output. And there's strong evidence to support that when staff are happy and enjoying their work and feeling uh, valued, that productivity goes up anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, the, Cullum has mentioned the health sector, and there would be problems going to a four-day-a-week there. There would be equally problems going to a four-day-a-week in my own former uh, profession, which is teaching because you would have to align the four days, particularly in national school, with the parents of the children that they were all off on the same day type thing. So there would be problems. But I think the key thing that comes out of what you've said this evening, is what we need is greater interaction between employers and employees to arrive at a working relationship that suits everybody. And I, yeah, I, I, I applaud what you're doing and I sincerely hope we see the four-day week. I just so but very quickly, think? John
2: Barry, I want to bring John Barry back yeah. in here. and um, We did move from a six-day week once, didn't we, to a five-day week. Was there a huge yes. drop-off in productivity then?
10: Well... No, I, the answer is well before my time. But, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly, I, I don't believe there was. But, I mean, you know, things have changed. I mean, we all recognize that technology has brought advances. But my, I suppose, just go back to one point you raised, my serious concern would be that this is actually legislated for, because I think that that shouldn't happen, and that's my big concern. OK, we're okay. going to
2: have to uh, leave it there. Sorry to cut across you, but we're running out of time on this particular item, but I'm sure we'll try and get back to it. Well, my thanks to my panel for coming in, Colum, Jared Hazel and John. Next, maybe we won't need to work at all. Does artificial intelligence pose a real risk to all of our jobs? Stay with us. Godfather of artificial intelligence technology, Jeffrey Hinton, has left tech giant Google and issued a stark warning about its potential to surpass human intelligence. Well, For more on this, I'm joined by Emmett Ryan, technology correspondent of the Business Post. and on Skype by history teacher Patrick Hickey. You're both very welcome to the programme, Emmett. I'm going to come to you first. Uh, who is this guy and, and how much credence should we put into what he has said?
0: Well, the thing with Jeffrey Hinton, you've heard a lot of these technologies, chat GPT and all these like AI art things. He basically was cre- critical to the building blocks that allowed all of these to exist. Like he's an academic at heart, like a computer scientist at heart. And When he speaks, people really should listen because he knows all about this. But he's also an honest broker; he doesn't have any sort of commercial angle in this game. So Elon Musk obviously had a letter a few months ago, which was a few weeks ago, sorry, which was signed by many, many academics. But there was questions over that because what are Musk's motivations? There's not really any doubt here with someone like Jeffrey Hinton. He's someone who's in the know, and he's chosen to leave this job because he feels he needs to not be with any particular company so he can speak independently and honestly with his views and what's happening with AI. He
2: said, "With AI, as it's stands, there's two things. A, it'll be very difficult to prevent bad actors doing bad things. And also when he looks, I suppose, at the advancements over the last five years and propagates those to five years ahead, he finds that quite scary. What does that potentially look like?
0: Well, I suppose when it comes to sort of the bad actors, essentially it's just the sheer sheer volume of action they can take. So when you think about misinformation, as we've known it over the last decade or so, like we've seen the impact it can have on elections, on life and everything, really with sort of the likes of these sort of chatbots, basically you can increase the volume you're creating, but also get it more targeted, get it smarter. So you're not relying on you or me basically to write the misinformation. You get a computer to work out what works, what doesn't, and so you can. For, if you're Vladimir Putin, that can prove very, very helpful mm. with the Western audiences. When it comes to the advances, it's essentially the speed of how quickly AI is getting better. Now, it's still a long way from being even as smart as me. Never mind, you know, somebody's actually are, intelligent. Let's
2: be clear, incredibly smart. I, I,
0: I, I was trying to play myself down, but in all seriousness, like we're talking, like you know, sub any r- typical animal intelligence, but. When you're looking at it right now, what we thought was 30 to 50 years away, Hinton is now saying it's more like 20 years away. So it's certainly accelerating in terms of its speed of development.
2: Okay, I want to go to uh, Patrick, um, who is a history teacher, I said, and I know he uses a lot of um, this type of AI in your teaching, because you've seen huge benefits. How has it impacted how you educate your students in a, in a positive way?
11: In a positive way? Well, I suppose... The first thing is, like, you know, I would agree with uh, Emmett there. We need to treat this with a, a healthy scepticism, like, you know, but just on the positives, I, I suppose the big thing is it has streamlined my work in terms of administration, but also in terms of lesson preparation, uh, assessment preparation. Uh, but I think the, the, the major thing is you know, what it is doing for students with additional needs, you know, because up to now, teachers could only do the one size fits all. Uh, But with AI, we're now in a position where we can personalise education and the learning uh, to our students' needs.
2: So it's changed your workload, essentially.
11: It has streamlined us, you know. I suppose in teaching, the Golden Grail is Bloom's taxonomy, you know. Um, These different types of questions, you know. And to actually prepare that and have that ready for a class, it would take hours of work. But we're now in a position now that you can go to AI chat, say I'm teaching such a thing or or a topic, and then ask it, you know, can you help me or assist me and come up with questions and strategies and approaches that will engage all learners. That's why it is so amazing.
2: Um, You've used it to develop policies in your school. Really quickly and really practically?
11: Yes. Um, I suppose most recently um, my school developed uh, a bring your own device policy, you know, and again, I suppose something like that now would take a lot of work, a lot of research, okay? Uh, But in this case, I could go to chat, ask it for a policy. But I suppose the way I look at chat, you know, and I suppose your other speaker there has said, like, you know, it it, it isn't, it, it it's not surpassing our intelligence yet, you know. It'll do what I call the 7 out of 10 job. But then it was up to me and my deputy my principal to sit down, look what what check came up with, adjust it to our context, take out the Americanisms, okay, because you, you will get that in the American spelling. And, again, it's fitted to our model in, in, in our school, you know. So, again, what could have been a very onerous task, it was streamlined, and, you know, I, I think the result was very, very positive.
2: So these are some of the positives, Emma, that we see in uh, education. And you saw today, actually, that shares in education companies plummeted off the back of these comments because I think there is a real concern that AI will be able to do so much of the work that companies would have been employed to do in the past. Does it have that possibility? Is there going to be a lot of job displacement here?
0: There's certainly a fear of it. Like, one of the areas even that Hinton himself brought up was he previously thought it would typically be low-skilled or unskilled labour that would be under threat. He's saying from his views, be up to four-fifths of what we know as jobs will be under threat, which would, of course, be most people and would be quite...
2: Four-fifths li- of all jobs currently in existence under threat. Theoretically speaking,
0: like, yeah. Now, this is, like, long-term, obviously, like, you know. But we, it comes down to all technologies, though, here is like, they aren't inherently designed to hurt us or help us. They're designed just to operate. And it's us, the people who are, you know, the humans, who decide how those technologies act. So AI is no different. Like, if we are smart about it, if it comes in at a state level with regulation over here are the ethics it must abide by, here here's what it can be allowed to do, here's the limitations what it can do, then we can see great examples like the teaching example we just saw there, how it can be very helpful in society. But if we aren't smart and if we like let it run wild as it is now, where just the companies behind it are setting the rules rather than society as a whole, that's where we're going to hit problems.
2: And I suppose at the moment we know the companies um, behind it, but in the future we might not.
0: And that's exactly the problem. Because like, right now we know it's Google, we know it's OpenAI, we know it's Microsoft. But like, as more and more people experiment with this, and again, without any re-regulation to govern how everybody operates, like you and I would have two very you know different views just randomly of what are the correct ethics. The entire point with a society is we come together and we work out and we have people at the top in government working this out and that's really what we need and I think what Hinton wants is international led action to sort of set out clear goals and regulation worldwide really to make sure that we're all on the same page here.
2: Do you think his comments are a game changer? Are they a wake up call
0: I hope so. Like, I think they'll be far more effective than anything Elon Musk did, whether Musk was right or wrong in his approach. Because I think, like I said, he's seen as this sort of honest broker, neutral arbiter. He's not got a commercial gain to make here. He feels that for the it's better for society if we sort of pause, think and work out what exactly you want to get out of AI and how it's going to help and hopefully not hinder society going forward.
2: Do you think the horse is bolder than this?
0: To a degree. But like my view always in these is like, you know, it's not wilted to the point that we can't pull it back because at this moment what AI can do it can't really think as such. Now it's getting better at processing data but it couldn't think the way your URI can it can't read and assess the situation to quite the same level. So we're still a long way from that particular risk. Like, so as, it's
2: not more intelligent than humans as it stands. Not remotely. Not remotely, because this was a concern of his, wasn't it? That I, it could know, he, replace a, the human brain. That it could
0: replace certainly, and it's in a, in a position where, as the technology develops, it could certainly overtake. But like right now, we'd be talking like you know, typically less than you know, most most house pets, to be honest, when it comes to level of intelligence. So, but the thing is, it can do one function at a time very very well. When you get 10,000 things doing that one function very, very well, of course, it's going to be better than you or I at one particular function. So the idea is, as we're limiting it, how it goes forward, how, as we're setting the rules to help it advance and help society, make sure that simply it's a case of we're making sure we're being smart and how we set the agenda, how we tell the AI where we want it to go. And essentially to make sure that it doesn't inadvertently become something we build to harm ourselves.
2: Are any policymakers worldwide setting the agenda here? Or has this sort of caught everybody off guard it's because kind of, of the advancements have been so fast?
0: There has definitely been an element of people being caught off guard. There have been some moves. Italy most notably effectively banned chat GPT within its borders, but its issue was around privacy. But at the same time they were motivated in part as well by concerns about AI. So it was a lot easier for Italy to make that move knowing there were concerns about the development of AI there. But That's one nation, a large nation, obviously, making a unilateral action. In order to see a real impact, you're really going to see the EU, the US, other major nations come together and set out what we need to do going forward as a
2: world. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But Emmett and Patrick, thank you for joining me on that item. Well, that's it from us here on The Tonight Show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.